Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sam Francis. My first guest is author Gabrielle Sells, the author of the new biography, Light on Fire, The Art and Life of Sam Francis. The book tells the story of Francis's wild, often tumultuous, multi-continental life. Sells was a California native who was always more interested in Europe and Asia than he was in New York, and details the making of his work, its global reception, and his efforts to help found art museums, such as the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. There are a lot of spectacular stories in this book, and they're all well told. You'll love it. It was published by University of California Press, IndieBound, and Amazon. Both offer it for about 35 bucks. We'll have links to them on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Museum of Fine Arts Houston curator Malcolm Daniel joins me to discuss a spectacular new acquisition. But first, Gabrielle Sells, after the break. Gene Brown's trove of Dada, Surrealist, and Fluxus artworks was one of the first comprehensive collections of 20th century art at the Getty Research Institute. The new exhibition, Fluxus Means Change, Jean Brown's avant-garde archive, reveals her intuitive and innovative collecting strategies, featuring artists including Marcel Duchamp, George Machunas, John Cage, Klaus Oldenburg, Yoko Ono, and others. Now on view at the Getty Center Museum and presented in English and Spanish. We invite you to take a closer look, listen to an audio guide, and make free advance reservations at getty.edu today. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents their annual benefit art auction and concert, Omaha's largest and most beloved celebration of contemporary art, on Friday, October 29th. Tickets to this year's event, celebrating Bemis Center's 40th birthday, are on sale now. The nearly 300 works of art by more than 200 artists are available to view and purchase online at Buy It Now prices beginning October 1st. The Benefit Art Auction Exhibition is on view to the public free of charge October 15th through 29th. Along with the artwork on view inside Bemis Center's galleries, the Benefit includes an outdoor tented block party, outside food and beverages, mobile bidding, and live music at Low End, Bemis Center's music venue, featuring experimental rock duo Shoo Shoo. Proceeds support participating artists, and Bemis Center's operations and artist-centric programs. Details, including Bemis Center's COVID safety policy and protocols, can be found at bemiscenter.org benefit. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, presenting Three Centuries of American Art, Antiquities, European, and American Masterpieces from the Fayez S. Seraphim Collection, showcasing more than 200 works, from Impressionism through Abstract Expressionism, Pop, Minimalism, and Contemporary Art. mfah.org slash seraphim collection. And we're back. Gabrielle Sells, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you. Let's jump into Sam Francis in, in World War II. What does Francis do during the war, or, <laughs> or try to, and how did it lead to or impact his beginning to paint? So Francis was at UC Berkeley. He was studying medicine, undergraduate, and the war was coming along, and he decides to join the Air Corps. He's been in Berkeley. They are having blackout drills. He's going up on the roof of his dorm and just watching the lights and the city go dark, and he's just really enraptured by that moment. And so he joins the Air Corps. He's training to be a pilot. And he starts writing letters to his girlfriend, Vera, back home that he's feeling ill. And at first, it's it's very confusing because he has back pains. He has a cough. He has to have his wisdom teeth removed. He has a fever. So they don't know what's wrong with him. He'd been in a, what's called a taxing accident in October of 1943, which is when he was first learning to maneuver a plane on the ground. It wasn't up in the air. It was on the ground. It just tipped over. But he, you know, went right back to piloting and didn't complain. Was this in Opolis, Kansas, if I'm remembering right? Yeah. So he went right back to flying, though. No pain, nothing. And then he starts having all these other problems. So they shuttle him around trying to figure out what's wrong with him. And it takes them a year 
a year to diagnose POTS disease, which is spinal tuberculosis. So then he's sent to Colorado, which had the hospital that was mainly dealing with tuberculosis. And he has a surgery where part of his spinal column is removed and replaced with part of his femur. And he's put in a cellular cast, a body cast, and a corset and put in what's called a Bradford frame bed, which was a cot positioned above a bed. And periodically, they like take off half the cast and wash him and then flip him over and take off the other half the cast. And so he's completely immobilized and suspended in the air. And he's bored out of his mind and depressed. And he's read everything he can possibly read. And he starts to paint that he's given, I guess, the um, Red Cross nurses come in and they give him paints and he starts to paint. And at first he's just doing paint by numbers and like memories remembered from his landscapes remembered from his childhood. And then he starts doing portraits of all the candy stripers. In fact, I was talking to a gallery in Mill Valley, this guy named Bob Green, and he said that periodically, uh, you know, a candy striper or a woman who had been a candy striper would come in, this was a long time ago, and tell him, oh, yeah, Sam painted my portrait. <laughs> yeah, he would give him away. And then, you know, he has a dream that he's going to be an artist. And so he devotes himself to painting. And that's what he did during the war. And he was eventually sent to Fort Miley in San Francisco and was again hospitalized there for a long time. And he had a vision that an orb of light entered his body and completely cured him. He believed that he cured himself through art, not the streptomorosine, which was the antibiotic he was eventually put on. And that's when David Park, the painter David Park, came to visit him. Before we get to Park, let me let me jump in one quick sec. You described the the kind of double-tier bed setup that that Francis was, I don't know, subjected to. <laughs> and there is an amazing picture in the book. Well, like one of I mean there are a lot of amazing pictures in the book. The the, the, the pictures are reason enough to buy the book. But there's an amazing picture in the book of Francis lying on his stomach sort of holding himself up with his left hand and forearm while painting watercolor on the bed two and a half feet below. It is an amazing way to learn how to paint. Yeah, and, and he's in the position of an airplane over a landscape, which is eventually, you know, his repertoire and vocabulary as an artist. So he's he can't fly except this way. So I thought that photograph was amazing, too. And, and then you see other photographs where he's completely turned his hospital room into a studio, you know, and he had the nurses bringing him eggs and he would mix the egg yolk with his paints to thicken the paints and he had the nurses sitting for him for portraits. So he's just completely converted this hospital room into an art studio and has his pictures all over the walls. And so people come in and talk to him and he... And he's in the newspaper. The first artist Francis met, as you uh, began to say a moment ago, was David Park. How did, how did Francis and Park meet? And how did Francis begin to work his way into San Francisco's small but really close and intense, super intense, famously intense art world? So David Park had had a brother who got sick during the war far away. And he couldn't visit him. So he started visiting injured GIs. And he came to the hospital and he visited Sam. And Sam had submitted one of his paintings, I think, Able Day, to have a jury, to a juried exhibition that I believe Park was on the jury. So they knew about each other. And he came to visit him and he would just come in and sit and talk with Sam. And he was the first professional artist Sam had ever met. And he would just talk about his philosophy of art and life. And eventually Park got, he was teaching at the San Francisco Art Institute, California School of Fine Arts then. And he told his students to about Sam and they would come and bring him canvases and paints and brushes. So Sam was making contact with the outside world. 
And little by little, he was, Sam said that Park sort of was the inspiration of brotherly love. And then Park arranged for Sam to go to the Legion of Honor. And so Sam was taken to the Legion of Honor on a gurney and wheeled through the Legion of Honor because he's still flat on his back. He can't sit up. And he's wheeled through through the Legion and he sees the El Greco painting of St. Francis. I think it's St. Francis. And he's just overwhelmed because it's a, you know, it's a strange painting. This is elongated El Greco figure looming over Sam in a blue robe. And he, Sam sees the El Greco keys and he starts, he gets sick. He says he gets sick. He has a fever after that. And he says, but I realized I had the keys to the kingdom in my hand. And by that, he meant he had art. And that was the key to his kingdom and to his future. The El Greco is a St. Peter. Yeah. Well, let's just say all the Sam Francis stories are great stories. And that one's no different. <laughs> So at the end of World War II, in about 1947, Francis paints a gouache called California Gray Coast. It was the first picture in the 2000 retrospective at Mo that, that Mocha and the Reina Sofia in Spain organized. And you point to it in, in this book as, as an important picture as well. Where did Francis paint it and what made it important to him and in his career or in what would become his career? Honoray, he was working on his portfolio to, to go to Berkeley because he'd had two years of undergraduate in medicine and he wanted to go back as an artist, which he would eventually do. But California Gray is a re really interesting painting because in that painting, he has he's in three positions. He's like a pilot flying over the landscape. It's also the seascape seen from right standing there and it's also the the um, landscape of his imagination so he sort of combines all these different simultaneously all these different perspectives in this one painting um it's also monochrome it's a monochrome gray and sam went through a long period where he only used one color at a time he said color was like a tiger it was too intense he had to only approach it one color at a time so this one is in really monochromatic colors so, yeah, it was a really pivotal painting. And then he paints it and he spatially very ambiguous, too. And if you look at later paintings of Sam Francis, especially the ones that, that are cartography paintings from the 50s, again, they have real spatial ambiguity. But this is even before he's gone to school. And so he paints it and then he enters Berkeley, where he becomes influenced by Still, we talked about Clifford Still, Rothko, Edward Corbet, who was a painter at Berkeley and Sam's last professor there, also did a lot of really interesting monochromatic paintings. So how did those guys inform who Francis would become? Well, I think Rothko and Still, he didn't never studied with either Rothko and Still, but he was influenced by them because Sam was at Berkeley and the Art Institute was across the bay. And so he would go across the bay on the weekend. Sam wasn't really good at attending classes. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. And even one of his a student who was in his class said, you know, we would get an assignment, a still life. And Sam would come in with his version of a still life. And it was all done in blue or all done in red. He was only doing one color at a time. And he wasn't really doing the assignment. He was doing what he wanted to do. But on weekends, he would go. He was he, was, he complained that he wasn't well enough to attend classes, but he was well enough to go over across the bay to the Art Institute. And he would just kind of hang out and pick up sort of, you know, what was going on there, what the other students were learning about Still. He, he met Still or Still remembered seeing him sort of lurking around. You know, he would pick up what was going on with, with Rothko, who had taught there previously, and he would incorporate it into his work. And then also the San Francisco Museum of modern, well, it wasn't called the Modern Art Museum then, but it was called the San Francisco Museum, had a lending program where for a few dollars you could borrow a painting and take it home and hang it on your wall. And Sam would do that with his friend Fred Martin, and they would borrow a painting and they would take it home and they would study the painting. And so I know he did that with a park. I don't, I never found out which park it was, but I believe he did that with other paintings too. He was also really influenced, I think, by Gorky. And you can see that a little bit in his figure, you know, his sort of cellular shapes. He went through a, a short surrealist period 
But with Rothko, it was those blocks of color. But where Rothko's blocks of color kind of fade away, Sam's were more circular, more cellular shaped. He was really influenced by the drama and size of still and the aspirations, you know, these sort of mythological aspirations of both Rothko and still. You can really see this in what maybe is Francis's first big mature painting for Fred, the aforementioned Fred Martin from from 1949. Uh, We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. In 1950, Francis leaves the United States for Paris. It's worth noting that at this time, there was not exactly a San Francisco to Paris pipeline. Yeah, but he makes a stop on the way to in New York for like a couple of days. And he goes and sees Malevich's White on White, which is really important later on, which he's blown away by. So for for how long is Francis in Paris? And what does he get out of being there? He arrives in Paris in October of 1950. And he's in Paris. I mean, he's in Paris for years. He's in Paris for nearly a decade until he really starts to leave Paris in the end of 1956. He makes one journey home in the middle. But he was he was one of the ex expats in the circle that centered around this sort of art empresario named and art historian named George Dutuy, who is married to Matisse's daughter, Marguerite. And he was in Saint-Germain-de-Prés and hung out with the existentialists. But he was part of this little expat group of artists in Paris, a lot of them on the GI Bill. Al Held, Norman Bloom, Jean-Paul Riabelt was a Canadian. Shirley Jaffe was there. Later in 55, Joan Mitchell came. A philosophy student named Rachel Jacobs was there. And they they were just congregating in Paris. They were listening to jazz. They were picking up all these ideas floating around. Sam fell in love with the late work of Monet and also Bonnard, Bonnard's big yellow fields of color, sections of color. You can see that in Francis. But he saw, looked at the Monet, which I guess, I, want, I think in 50. 54, they opened up at the Rangerie in Paris. And you could see those really, really huge late Monet paintings. And to him, they were the beginning of color field painting. So he sort of took all that in. Also sections of Matisse, he was really influenced by, especially the windows, the light in the windows, how Matisse used light and color. But all those French painters and Sam had a very lyrical hand, he just organically. He was a virtuoso with, you know, paint and color and just his touch was really light. So in Paris, he did his first series, which he became really well known for, which were the white series. They look to be white, but they're not white. They're done with many little colors. Some are greenish, some are red tinted. They're little amassing cellular shapes. They look like wind through a cockpit window, you know, blowing wind. They look like fog. They, they're, they're just this all over white space. And he did those starting in 51. So that was the first series that kind of really surprised people. They were these strange spaces. George Dutuy called them the space between things. And I sort of wondered what that space was. And Sam had spent so much time in the hospital staring up at the ceiling. He literally said he stared at the ceiling until it bled color. And so the paintings kind of have that color bleeding through white surface that he was experiencing. But he was also enclosed in a white cast. He was enclosed in a white room for so long. So he painted these paintings and he did them in this teeny 10 by 10 hotel room, the Hotel de Seine in Paris, where he would have to keep them under a bed and he would roll them out a section at a time and paint them a section at a time. And so he sort of thought of painting itself as being just a section of time because that's how he experienced it. He could only paint one section at a time. So a painting was only like a snapshot of a moment and it continued Every painting continued into the next painting. So that's what he was working on in Paris. And then he, from the white paintings in 51 by 53, he was doing the black paintings, 
which aren't black either. <laughs> he never just, uh, yeah, he never just used black. He, his black was built up with a lot of color. If you look at the black paintings, to me, they look like stained glass because you can look at them and like the black is cracking open and there's all this color coming through underneath. And one of the most beautiful ones was a one called Big Orange and Black. It was bought by a guy named Arnold Rudlinger and it sort of put Sam on the map, put him in Time Magazine because they paid, I think, a million francs, which sounds like a lot of money, but it was probably in those days, $3,000. But it was still a lot of money for this painting. And, you know, so they used it on time, in Time Magazine for the selling a million franc painting. Ah, you mean Deep Orange and Black from 1954-55? Yes, I mean Deep Orange and Black from 1954 and 55. And it's a big swirling painting of black sort of cellular, crespular shapes with orange and yellow and gold and red underneath. And to me, it looks like, you know, something out of Blake of William Blake. It just has that kind of drama and, and darkness and heaven and hell, you know? <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really terrific painting. I, when I saw that painting, I burst into tears. You can't get that sense from looking at it, you know, in a JPEG. It's just, it's huge. It towers over you and it's just so dramatic. In fact, when Rudlinger saw the painting, he said to Sam, if you're crazy enough to painting, paint a painting that big, then I'm going to be crazy enough to buy it, which I, I sort of love those characters. <laughs> and they're, and they're, they're big statements. So over the course of the time Francis is in Europe, and he's based in Paris, but he's getting around, how does his study of color change or progress as he's there? So he said he had to have, color was so intense for him, and he's called it a tiger, that he had to approach it one color at a time. So first he does the whites. He said he couldn't afford anything else but white paint, but there's other colors in there. Is that true, by the way? That he couldn't afford other colors? Yeah. Was there was like white really that different in cost or, or to leave canvases, you know, quiet? I that... don't I think that's like with, with Sam, a lot of those things are slightly exaggerated. Makes for a good read, though. <laughs> Yeah, it makes for a good read. There's a lot of other colors in there. He was on the GI Bill, so he got money from the GI Bill. He also got money from disability. So he, you know, which, so he had a little bit more money than other people. So, you know, I, I and Sam was really good at getting people to help him. Parents, his ex-wives, you know, he was, he was very savvy, savvy in, in all these areas. So first he's doing the whites and then he goes on to doing the blacks and then he goes on to doing these what he called his monsters which were just one color at a time. And these really are just one color paintings. There there's blue paintings, he did green paintings, almost emerald green paintings, a huge beautiful painting of yellow that's like staring into the sun. And he was doing those mostly in the south of France where Matisse had worked, he had gone down to visit the de Tweets, and he's down there in the same area, painting in the garden and approaching color, one, one color at a time. And then very gradually, white comes in to play. And Sam has always, so he never painted directly on unprimed canvas. He always primed his canvas and he always primed his white canvas with a color, white tinted in a red or a blue. And so white comes more and more into play and the the color starts breaking open and you see the white and white is then as much a color as say the red or the yellow in these paintings that come towards the end 1956 they come and start to come in 1956 and you really see this in the basel mural which he starts to paint at the end of 1956 when he's breaking up with his second wife and right before he leaves France, he's becoming, he says he's becoming dissatisfied with France and he wants to venture out in the world. He had also gone to New York in 1955 and he really wants to plant, you know, a foot in New York and a flag in New York. He has very mixed emotions about New York because in, by this time in France and in Europe, he's really well known, but in New York, he's not. 
and he thinks he should be. <laughs> yes, big you know, ego. Let me, let me jump in just to say that that kind of turned out to be a pretty good strategy for him. I mean, he's very well collected and held by European museums, maybe maybe even more so than here. Yeah, and I, I, as I said before, I mean, Paul Schimmel said that Sam made an end run around New York, bringing the vocabulary of abstract expressionism to Europe, but through a California lens. And Jay DeFeo, who came and visited Sam when he, they were students together in Berkeley, and she came and visited Sam when he had just shown his white painting. So it was about 1953. And she said that Paris was ready for Sam and for something different. And he was right there to give it to them. So his timing was really good and it benefited him, but it also put him at odds with New York. He had his first one-man show in Paris, I think a few months before Jackson Pollock had a one-man show there. And so he kind of, he did, he made an end run around these artists. And so when he got back to New York, they didn't know where to place him. Was he Californian? Was he French? Was he, you know, a New Yorker? Was he East Coast? Was he West Coast? Who was he? Was he first generation? Was he second generation? Nobody knew where to place him and everybody wanted to put him in a category. So he said later that he really felt like a fugitive. And then, you know, when he was in France, of course, the French were also trying to have their own version of abstract expressionism, which they called art informal, much more material than Sam. But again, that whole sense of feeling and expression on the canvas. And so they were trying to lump him into their school of painting. And Sam really didn't want to be in any school. You can tell by his personal geography, the extent to which he, he resisted that. And indeed, this, the story of Francis in New York is very much more about his interest in New York as a market center rather than his wanting to physically be there. <laughs> he didn't like New York. He called the city Dostoevskian, which I think is perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't. And Al, Al Leslie said that about Sam, who Al shared a studio with him. He bought, Sam rented this huge, huge, biggest studio anybody had in New York down around the corner from the Chelsea Hotel. And Al shared the space with him. And so did um, Martha Jackson for a certain amount of time. And Al said of Sam, he, you know, he wanted to be the Pollock of New York and he was not the Pollock of New York, but in Paris, he was Pollock, you know, he was that well-known and revered and he liked that, you know? So he was always a little bit out of sorts in New York. He was always uncomfortable and he was jittery, you know, the New York made him edgy and, I can understand that. Cal Californians don't always love New York. Yep. It didn't have the <laughs> light and the space. It had those tall buildings. Even when you look at Sam's paintings from when he was in New York and you look at the Chase mural and around the world, which he did after he'd been to New York and gone back to, to Europe, they have much sharper edges. They're more angular paintings. I think the Chase mural is the one he painted in New York. I'm not sure it is around. New York, right. So in 1961, Francis nearly dies. From what? And, and does that experience have an impact on the work? Tuberculosis never leaves your body. My mom had TB, so I grew up with a tubercular person in my home. <laughs> it reoccurred. So he had a, he got urogenital tuberculosis, which is tuberculosis of the testicles. He came down with it in Japan. He thought he had cancer and he flew back to Switzerland because he was very close to Eberhard Kornfeld, who was a gallerist and an auctioneer. And Kornfeld put him into the hospital in Bern under the care of a guy named Dr. Baron Dune. And they diagnosed him with urogenital TB. And he had already started six months earlier maybe three months earlier, in fact, a series that would become the Blue Balls series. So there's, you know, I mean, Sam thought he'd prophetically, through his art, realized he was sick and the Blue Balls were connected to his testicle tuberculosis. While he was in the hospital, he, again, he was in the hospital for eight months and for a long time he was in bed and he couldn't work. He starts to do drawings because he can sit up and he does these black and white ink drawings of what would be the blue balls. And then eventually he's allowed to get up and he starts to position himself because he's again bedridden over 
the work below him. And so he reorients himself to his canvases. And you can see that in the blue balls because they float. I mean, they're really awesome. They're amazing, but they float on the canvas. And if he had painted them upright, you would see drips or they wouldn't have worked as well. They're magnificent paintings. They're not that many of them because he only did them for a short period of time. They have to do with, again, he thought they had to do with his tuberculosis, but they also have a lot to do with Matisse's Blue Nude. I mean, they come out of that. But while Matisse's Blue Nude was a whole nude, Sam's nudes or Sam's balls are all, it's just the genitals. They're about polarities, the the white space and these floating blue orbs. Eventually, they start to incorporate other colors. He also said of those paintings that they were a way to contain himself. He felt like he was going in a million different directions in the hospital. And somehow or other, the blue space, those circles of blue space helped him contain himself. And so he lay in bed and did those. And he did them for a short period of time when he got out of the hospital in 62. In 63, he did a few more with color added. But after that, he stopped painting for a number of years, or at least he stopped painting big paintings and he started doing prints. And one of the reasons he stopped painting, I think there were a lot of reasons he was traumatized by becoming so ill again and nearly dying. Also, the balls, if you look at them, they start to float off further and further from the center of the white canvas. And they start to leave the canvas. I mean, they're like characters who walk off the stage. They're just leaving it. And he doesn't know what's going to be there. You know, what's going to what's he going to paint? Because his subject matter has decided to leave the theater. So he waits. He waits for a number of years until he's ready to paint the edge paintings. I should note this is probably the first time in program history that a guest has brought up a Matisse Blue Nude before I could. This time it's the 1952 Blue Nudes that that Francis was mindful of, not 1907. You know, this is the period in Francis's life, kind of the 60s and 70s, when he's becoming outsized as a personality, bone vivant, probably a few other things too. And a number of times in the book, you note that Francis's ambition and self-centeredness left him almost megalomaniacal or messianic. So what what were the types of things he, he did that, that fit the charge, <laughs> if you will? You know, I really, I, I sort of clued into... Sam, when I was reading one of his notebooks, and he wrote in his notebooks, he wrote this question, what do I like about myself the most? And then he wrote below it, I like, I love my desire. I love desire itself, not what I desire. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, it's not the thing. It's not the woman you get, right? Because there's always another one. (laughs) So he was married five times. He had studios on three continents. He had a studio in New York. Eventually he had them on three continents. He had his space. He kept his space in Paris. He had a carriage house in Switzerland. He had, when he got well from tuberculosis, he had a whole, you know, channel road studio complex, and then a number of studios in Ocean Park and Santa Monica. He had a space in Japan. So he was constantly reaching he got involved with a man who was his biggest collector named Sazu Itomitsu. And Sazu was the sort of, he was a, basically a robber baron. He was the Rockefeller of Japan. He was an oil magnet. And he began collecting Francis. And he said to Sam, you know, I'm going to build a museum to house my collection. And immediately Sam jumped in and decided he wanted to design the museum. And so he goes to Japan and starts working on with Sazu on the design of his museum. And this will put Sam in sort of this very unique position of being one of the few artists in the world at that time to have their own museum. I think Monet had his in Paris. And I think at that time, Picasso might have already had one, but nobody else. And so he starts to go off and do that. And then he sabotages himself by falling in love with Sazo's daughter, Mako, while he's still married to his third wife, Taruko. And of course, Sazo gets very angry and takes away the museum. And so Sam was constantly getting embroiled 
in these conflicts where he would put himself in the center of a drama and something where people were contesting for his intent and his attention and his love or his his paintings and then he would retreat he would throw everything up and he would retreat and he would either travel leave and travel or he would just retreat into the studio to paint and i think he needed that kind of contradiction and that dynamic to then find his way back to painting to the sort of sanctity of the white canvas you know i had in my notes that this might not be a an answerable question especially given what you were just saying about his wanderlust but should we think in terms of francis finally eventually returning to california or is he never really you know in these later decades enough of a californian to count as having really returned to california oh i think he returned to california i think he felt like california was his home i don't think he thought of himself as a california artist though but he really did try and put LA, I mean, he gets to LA and it's sort of like this, wherever you are in LA, you're far away from everything else. There's like no center to LA. There's no art center to LA. And he immediately starts to pull people together to create an art center in LA in the early sixties. It was called the New Art Society. He pulled in Rudlinger. He pulled in his lawyer, Bill Elliott. He pulled in a woman named Betty Friedman. He pulled in Walter Hopps. And their idea was to put L.A., that the artists were the nerve center of any area. And they wanted to put L.A. on the map as an art center. So I think he really did connect to California. He said he loved the light in L.A. best of all. But he didn't want to ever stay in one place, even in L.A. So he had a lot of different studios. He had studios for big work and he had studios for little work. He had his home studio and he had the studio in Ocean Park. He had, you know, by the 70s, he'd started, he'd opened up the litho shop, which is where he did prints. And he invited other artists to come in and do prints. When Judy Chicago did that print, I cannot remember the name, sorry, but it's the one of a Tampax. It was an early print she did. She did it at Sam's litho shop. You know, he would invite other artists to do, and he would do a series of books of their prints. He opened up Lapis Press to do art books. So I think he was very committed to California, but he, as he once said, he said, light and space excite him. It turns the dream machine on. So anytime he went to a new studio or a new place, a new country, that switch was turned on and he, you know, used it to sort of spark new visions. How does he come to be involved in MOCA's founding and what role did he play? That was interesting. So that came out of the people who got together to form the New Art Society, which kind of was stillborn. It didn't really work. The funding never got off the ground, but it was to be more of a sort of Kunsthalle, which is a cultural center. And then with MOCA, Marsha Weissman, who was the wife of Fred Weissman and the sister of Norton Simon, who... <laughs> is the Norton Simon of the Norton Simon Museum, decided that, you know, L.A. really needed a contemporary art museum. And she bent the ear of the mayor and they decided she got the money and they got the land. And then Robert Irwin heard about it because they were all friends from when they were doing the New Arts Society. They were all a lot of the same people who then did MOCA, Robert Irwin heard about it and told Sam, and Sam immediately got on board. And Sam was the most famous artist in L.A. at that time. So he gets on board and he starts, he gets onto the artist committee, places himself on that committee, and they start looking around for a director. And Sam suggests Pontus Holton. And Pontus Holton had been, for a couple of years, he had been at Pompidou. He was the founding director of the Pompidou in Paris. Also a big Sam supporter. And Pont, Pontus said he loved three things in the world. He loved sailboats, he loved art, and he loved Sam Francis. <laughs> and so, and, and for a time, Pontus indeed parked his boat in Sam's driveway. Right. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. So they bring Pontus in as the director. They also hire Richard Kashalik. Richard Kashalik. Kashalik to be the assistant director, I believe, or they have co-directors. 
and they're all, you know, sitting around having meetings about the museum and they need to have an architect, find an architect. And so Sam gets himself on the architecture committee to choose the architect. And they're choosing, sitting around choosing it for a while. Robert Irwin wanted to do it, but they weren't going to let Robert Irwin do it. And so they're arguing and arguing and arguing about it. And Sam just sort of sits off to the side very quietly. And then when they're done arguing, he says, why don't we just take a trip and go around the world and look at our favorite museums? And that's what they do. And they go around the world. They go to the Pompidou. They go to Sweden. They go to Denmark. And they look at all these buildings. And then at the very end, Sam has arranged for them to go to Japan to meet with Arata Isozaki. Isozaki had just done a red sandstone building and they go there and they all fall in love with this red sandstone and they hire Isozaki. And at that point, Isozaki, who is now world famous, but he had never designed a building outside of Japan. And he was somebody that Sam met when he first went to Japan in 1957. So they had been old friends. He met Iso when he was still a student and he pulls Iso in to do the building and there's lots of drama with the building. As you know, there's still problems with that whole museum. But the, the, some, some of the drama is pretty good because at one point, Isazaki threatened to quit. Yeah, he did threaten to quit. And then Pontus said he would quit. Everybody said they would quit. And Sam calmed Iso down and said it will work out. And it did work out. So Sam was a voice of reason in that. And Sam also throws fundraisers for them. They do a whole print addition to sell to raise money. They raise more money than they need. He also gets collection donated. Marsha Weissman ends up donating work to MOCA. Sam ends up donating work to MOCA. Eli Broad comes on board with a million dollars. You know, they, they, they got it off the ground and it was the first contemporary museum that was done by really with the artists in mind. And really having a say in the design and what they wanted in the country. And Erwin, as Erwin said, he said, we heard about it and we decided we wanted to get our oar, our oar in the water. <laughs> Which I love that image. So they had a real hand in it. And for better or for worse, I mean, it's it was quite a feat. And it did change the whole landscape of L.A. I mean, eventually. And arguably other cities, too. In other cities, too. And Bro did his museum across the street. So that whole downtown area was changed. I mean, the Broad sort of takes away, I think, a lot of the audience from MoCA, but it's a spectacular museum, too. And so the Broad is a curated collection, right? It's a, it's a very different situation. And, and MoCA, a lot of their collection was, you know, donations by people who first, you know, got involved in it. So they have, it's a very different feeling, too. Well, if Mocha ever wants to re-embrace that Isazaki era, that early Isazaki era, um, I, my memory is that they have Isazaki-authored drawings for how to expand the museum downward into, uh, into Bunker Hill. So the, the last of the color plates in the book is a picture of one of Francis's studios, and it's probably a good picture and time of Francis's life to end on. What does that picture show and what was Francis working on? Those were his last works. So he was dying of prostate cancer. He had refused to have conventional medical treatment and had done all sorts of crazy things to mitigate the disease, including the belief that he could cure himself through painting. But right before this, he had stopped painting because his cancer had spread into his bones and he'd broken an arm. And so he hadn't painted for a long time. He had broken his right arm. And one of his studio assistants, Doug Shields, said, Sam, you were born to paint. And Sam said, I can't paint. He could barely talk. And Doug said, it doesn't matter. You just need to paint. And so Doug set up the studio. He put all the paints out and... Sam was wheeled in in a wheelchair. Sometimes he was hooked up to an IV and he poured when he could and he painted with a stick. And they're very dark little paintings. They're not the big expansive paintings of infinity. They're paintings of mortality. There are a lot of marks. A lot of them look like they've been crossed out. 
some of them are somewhat muddied, but they're still really, really intense works. He thought of them as one whole work of art. I think there ended up being 152 of them. Margaret, who was his last wife, said they should be called joie de vie. Sam wanted them to be called joie de vie in reference to Matisse and also in reference to Sam's sort of life force, his spirit. But now they're not called joie de vie because they're not joyous. They're dark paintings. They are called the last works. And so that's what he was working on. And he worked on them almost up until he died. They're sad. I think they're sad. I think they're also... They're, as an expression of mortality, I think they are the right note for him to end his life on because Sam wanted to be immortal and they're about mortality. They're about death. I mentioned earlier there was a big multi-continental retrospective in 2000. Are there any upcoming Francis shows to which we should look forward? There is one in 2023 at LACMA, Sam and Japan, which is about his dialogue with Japanese artists, their influence on him, his influence on them. There are two large murals up right now in Marble Gallery in a show called Legends. And I don't know of any other big Francis shows. I wish there were more. I think the the lens for, uh, in the art world is widening <laughs> to include lots of different diversity. And so that's what's happening. We'll look forward to the 2023 show. Gabrielle Sells, thanks so much. Thank you. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction, from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Experience Nasher Mixtape, a series of tracks or micro-exhibitions featuring the greatest hits and the newest works at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See works by Basquiat, Brancusi, Melvin Edwards, Miro, and more, including Judy Chicago's Rearrangeable Rainbow Blocks. The vibrant major work by Chicago celebrates the part women artists played in the legacy of minimalism. Exhibition closes on September 26th. More at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Malcolm Daniel joins me to discuss the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's acquisition of a major Julia Margaret Cameron album. The album is known as the Norman Album because it remained in the family of Cameron's daughter, Julia Hay Norman, until it was acquired by Houston. Includes over 70 prints, including Cameron's famed portraits of Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, Thomas Carlyle, Charles Darwin, John Herschel, and others. Cameron gave the album to her daughter as a gift, as a thank you for introducing her to photography. Malcolm Daniel, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, glad to be here. In the mid-19th century, the photographic album was a particular and popular form through which photographs were both sold and seen. Before we get to your new Cameron album, what should we know about why photographers would assemble pictures that way? Or maybe I should say why photographs would be assembled that way often by others, as a way to get pictures from photographers? Well, I think with some artists, the sequencing of the pictures was very important, just as it can be in a modern photo book. And so the orchestration of how one would move through a body of work could be controlled by the artist if the artist put together that, that album. So, for instance, we recently received as a magnificent gift Edward Balduce's album made in the early 1860s that traced the route of the railroad from Lyon to the Mediterranean, Lyon to Marseille, and then along the Côte d'Azur. And 
for Baldus, you can see that he's put it together in a very specific order, partly geographic, but also it would make connections between historic monuments, Roman monuments or medieval cathedrals or cloisters, and the modern feats of engineering, railroad viaducts and tunnels and stations and things like that. For Julia Margaret Cameron, I think actually the album was more just a way of bringing pictures together. I don't feel usually that there is a logic to the order. They're not chronological. They're not thematically grouped. And even in one case in the album that we're about to discuss, she included the same picture twice, almost like she sort of forgot that she had already put it in. So I think it was a little more haphazard for her, but a way of bringing together pictures that meant something to her that she hoped would mean something to the recipients of the album, and that gathered together the, some of her, her very best work. Your new album is known within the field as the Norman album. What is it? What makes it significant? How many pictures are in it? So Julia Margaret Cameron was 48 when she was given her first camera as a Christmas gift in December of 1863 by her daughter and son-in-law, Julia and Charles Norman. They gave it to her with a note that said, we thought it might amuse you to try your hand at photography during your solitude in freshwater. She lived in freshwater on the Isle of Wight. She was a recent empty nester. Her husband was away in Ceylon attending to family business. The children, she was a mother of six. The children had all moved out by then. So this was, she knew about photography for a long time, but this was the first time she had a camera. And it became, of course, much more than an amusement to her. And six, about six years later, in 1869, she gathered together 75 really fabulous prints that she had made. Maybe she made some especially for the album. She gathered these together and made an album as a thank you gift to her daughter and son-in-law. And she wrote an inscription on the front leaf that says, to the givers of my camera, I dedicate and give these works of this camera with all gratitude for the inexhaustible pleasure to me and to hundreds which has resulted from the gift. And that album has descended within the Norman family over the years to the great, great, great grandson of Julia and Charles Norman, who was the person from whom we recently acquired this magnificent album. And as I understand it, the dedication you just read is in Cameron's own hand, as are the titles or identifiers on each of the pictures? That's right. And a table of contents where she writes the, the contents of, of the album. So because this was a gift from Cameron to the Normans, we understand her as having selected the pictures herself, sequenced them herself, that this is a particular and thorough Cameron authorship and, and Cameron authored presentation of Cameron. Is that different from other surviving groupings of Cameron's work? Well, there are 10, we know of 10 other albums that Cameron made and that she gave to her sister, to the painter G.F. Watts, to Herschel, and to other close associates and, and relatives. And um, each is unique. So in every case, we assume, uh, I think the evidence shows that she put the album together, but each of those albums is different, and some have just a slightly different inflection in terms of their contents. You know, one that will have more of the biblical scenes, for instance, and fewer of the portraits. So it's a unique album, but it's not unique as an album. It's, I mean, speaking as a guy who's written about photography a bit, one of the things about it that, and, and indeed, I guess the rest, that, that really strikes me is I wrote a book about the 19th century photographer and artist Carlton Watkins, but I'm not sure that we have any albums that we know he sequenced himself 
and there is something or were something like 60 to 80 surviving albums of his work as you know that have been known about in recent decades some of them of course have since been disassembled so that you know that we have cameron albums that are of her selection and her sequencing seems to a watkins scholar i don't know it's just a little brain numbing i like i you know it just makes me wonder <laughs> it, it just calls out to me what we don't have in terms of my artist if you will <laughs> right I think it's interesting. There, in a way, there are three types of albums. There are albums, like I mentioned, the Baldus album, very carefully structured in a certain sequence. It exists in multiple copies, each of them handmade, but essentially consistent across the surviving examples. There are albums like the Cameron album, which we know the artist has assembled and whether or not I understand a particular sequence, still it's the sequence that she put them in. And then there are many albums from the 19th century, and I guess your Watkins albums usually fall into this category, where people bought prints, perhaps of their own selection, and had them bound for a particular purpose. Often at extremely high cost. Right. And those are interesting because they tell us something about the mindset and the purpose, the intent of the person who acquired the pictures and had them bound, but it doesn't necessarily tell us everything we want to know about the artist's intent. Yeah, it's a wild, it's a wild thing and leaves me extremely jealous. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the pictures that are, are in the album. You mentioned portraits, you mentioned biblical stories or people dressed up as biblical characters, and, and there's allegorical work in, in the album too. First, let's start with the portraits. Who are some of the people whose portraits are included and what should we understand from their conclusion or Cameron's interest in them? So Julia Margaret Cameron was connected to so many of the great minds of Victorian England. She was introduced to photography at its very beginning moment by the great British scientist Sir John Herschel. She was friends with the painter G.F. Watts. She was a next-door neighbor of Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poet laureate. She knew Charles Darwin and Robert Browning and Thomas Carlyle and, as I say, many of the great minds of Victorian England. Her selection of subjects and her titling of them may not fit exactly into our contemporary notions. She described men great through genius, women through love. And I guess maybe it's a reflection of what the structures of society were like in Victorian England that, you know, nobody fell into the category for her of women great through genius. So her photographs of men tend to be these, these great figures. And the album has multiple pictures of Watts, of Herschel, of Tennyson, for instance. The women that she photographed tended to be relatives, nieces and daughters, or neighbors, or household servants. And those are usually titled with allegorical names. So they are Sappho, or Zoe Maid of Athens, or uh, Rosalba, or other literary, or historical, or allegorical figures. Because while there was a market for photographs of Sir John Herschel, the greatest of British scientists, there wasn't much market for Mary Hillier, the housemaid of Julia Margaret Cameron. So by giving it a different title, she put it into a realm of art where it could function really within the market. And she saw in people, both, both men and women, she saw often an embodiment of the characteristics she associated with historical or literary figures. She says the very first picture that she made, she said, you know, she, she tells the story that she didn't, she didn't really have any training in photography. That may be an exaggeration. She said, I didn't know where to place my dark box, how to focus my sitter. And my first picture I effaced to my consternation by rubbing my hand over the filmy side of the glass. It was a portrait of a farmer of freshwater who, to my fancy, resembled Bolingbroke. So she would see these characters in the world around her. 
So the portraits are quite different than portraits of men and women, not aesthetically, but maybe in terms of who they who they depict and how they're titled. And then there's a group of photographs that are more illustrational, sometimes of biblical scenes, so Madonna and child or particular saint, and then others that are more literary in their in their subject matter. And these will often be staged scenes that remind us a little bit of the kind of amateur theatricals that were popular in Victorian England and that she herself organized in, in her backyard with you know neighbor kids, Tennyson's sons, for instance, dressed up as different literary characters. And, and so that constitutes a, a different group sort of what she called fancy subjects. So you, you detailed how she's photographing famous men and constructs that are familiar to her time. Do you think she was taking advantage of who was available to her, or is she mindfully constructing an intellectual history of her present? I think it's clear that all of her subjects are chosen by her very consciously. She never ran a portrait studio. She didn't take portrait commissions. She photographed people who meant something to her. They were her pantheon in a way. I mean, when she writes about Sir John Herschel, she says, you know, he wasn't just, it wasn't that he was just a famous scientist. He was, you know, a teacher and a high priest and an illustrious and revered as well as beloved friend. So for her, all of that is coming into her decision to photograph, her desire to photograph Sir John Herschel, and then the way she chooses to, to show him. I don't think her choice of subjects is ever just opportunistic that, you know, somebody was in town. There's, there's one of famous violinist Joachim, who was giving a concert in London, and she photographed him at that time. But the vast majority are people she felt a deep connection to. The album is an album. It's, it's bound in red Morocco leather. It's common in museum practice for museums or libraries to disbound, if you will, photographic albums to show individual prints. How will you display it? We will not disbind it. I can assure you that. <laughs> I didn't think I so. I mean, there, there are three or four of the surviving albums have been taken apart. And while it's great to be able to put all of those pictures on the wall, it changes it so much. And here we have something that's been preserved for 150 years. We want to keep it that way. So we will put it on view. And my expectation is that we will put it more or less on permanent view and then flip the page every month because there are so many great pictures in it. And that will be a way for people to see something new each time they come rather than you know, having one opportunity to see the 75 pictures on the wall something like that. So that's the plan. We might also do what many places do now and have a little iPad next to it where one could flip through the entire album in a virtual way. But the main thing is to see the actual album and the actual pictures there. And unlike many such albums, in this case, there are often photographs uh, mounted to both the recto and verso of each page. So in many cases, when you open to a spread in the album, you have two photographs to see rather than just one. One of the things I love about that is it's substantially faithful to 19th century presentation of these albums. Uh, there are lots of photographs of the 19th century of albums such as this one in somebody's drawing room or in somebody's library on a, on a wooden stand, maybe a little bit below eye level, you know, maybe two feet below eye level, but still elevated. And people who were visiting the library, whether the owner of the house or a visitor, could walk up and page through the album. So too at Athenaeums and uh, mercantile libraries, and then later at what we now recognize as public libraries. Photographic albums were often presented this way. So it sounds like what you're doing is as close as a modern museum can come to presenting this thing as this thing would have been, this thing and things like it would have been presented in the 1860s and 70s. Right. Cameron was a very specific portraitist. Her portraits very much look like Cameron's. They're immediately recognizable, whether 
whether it's that picture of Herschel with the Caravage's lighting and his nose seemingly pressing, you know, into the lens or, or pictures that are more, more distant and more, you know, air quotes, artfully posed. How do we see in this album her range of distinctive approach to portraiture? She wanted to do something very different from what most portrait photographers were doing in the 19th century. Almost always, photographers tried to make the image as sharp as they possibly could. They often posed people next to a big classical column or in a fancy chair with a heavy, serious-looking tome next to them on the table. And they tried to make the exposure as instantaneous as they could like that to make sure that everything was was sharp and in, in focus uh, and that there was no movement. She did something very different. Her pictures were purposely a little bit out of focus. They were softened. She said she wasn't interested in map making and skeleton rendering. It wasn't about that perfect representation of every every pore and every hair on the body. It was something something different. And in her first pictures where they were out of focus, she, she sort of focused the lens up to the point where she thought it looked beautiful, and then she stopped instead of continuing to focus it in the way that most photographers would. And instead of trying to have that instantaneous exposure, she purposely set things up in order to have the exposure last a little bit longer so that the movement, the slight movement of the sitter would register on the glass plate negative and instill the picture with a sense of breath and of life so that they didn't look like a wax figure. Light seems to land on faces in her pictures rather than bounce back at us. You know, we, 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 tend to feel that these are breathing people before us rather than people holding their breath, trying to stand as still as they can and being propped up by a piece of wood so they helping them not to move, you know? <laughs> Almost all of the portraits are in a kind of a neutral setting. Often the background is, is dark. People emerge from it. The men in their Victorian style with long, long hair and beards and such often look like Old Testament prophets. And there is this kind of soft lighting, directed lighting that gives a certain painterly quality. And she was very conscious. She was friends with many painters and educated in art in the broadest sense and not educated in the particular details of photographic technique and practice. And so she just aimed for something different than the kind of picture one would get going to a commercial studio. Yeah, they all they feel personal rather than transactional. Yes. Nicely said. Malcolm Daniel, thanks very much. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this great acquisition. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.